Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of On the Record with your host, Tone Vase. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, probably doesn't need that much of an introduction. Uh, the name is Cliff High. A lot of you have been asking me uh, to either have me be on his show or him come on my show. And we were finally able to get together and get this done. So I will go ahead and introduce to you uh, Cliff High. Uh, he runs the website halfpasthuman.com. And um, I will let him introduce himself. And then I will also mention how I ran across his name and his work uh, long before I ever heard of Bitcoin. Uh, we're talking 2009, 2010 days. Even though Bitcoin was already around, it wasn't on anybody's radar. So go ahead, Cliff. Uh, say hi and introduce yourself, even though I think my audience yeah. knows you pretty well. Uh, yeah. Hello, guys. Um, uh, just uh, run some computers, do some web scraping. Uh, I never used to call it that. I used to call it spiders. Uh, old school approach um, and do some uh, natural language processing and then spit out reports based on an emotional tagging that leads me to think that the linguistics can be predictive in the future. All right. Um, anything? Um, well, I, so before I get into, um, so I'm going to do some screen share. Uh, so here is uh, Cliff's uh, Twitter and um, your website. Let's start there, Half Past Human. Um, how did you come up with that name? It's a name of a novel out of the 50s uh, that was a collection of short stories uh, by the guy, I, I think his author's name is Bruner. It's about the, um, <laughs> it's a science fiction story. It's about the half-assed evolution of humans. <laughs> gotcha, all right. And um, let's talk a little bit about your background and your history. Uh, what did you, like, what was your field of study? Uh, what did you do before, let's say, the internet? And how did you <laughs> come into doing this? A large chunk of my life was before the internet. Um, I studied oceanography and uh, life sciences uh, back when it was called ecology. And they meant something slightly different. And I got into this because I had a uh, uh, DNA attachment to tinkering. So my father was a tinkerer, right? He could build things. And so that's what leads uh, from one generation to the next. And we end up in what we call tech. And so I just have uh, a knack for it. I understand it. I can categorize it. I can catalog it. I can make the stuff work. I can repair it. I can build it. Uh, so that's kind of how I fell into it. And then I was working for this uh, little outfit called Microsoft and had done some consulting work for them. Uh, and because of the consulting work I'd done for them, I had to think about language. And then I really started thinking deeply about what humans use language for and how they use it. And that led me to the idea that language could be predictive. And I started noticing it around people and said, well, damn, if I could ever aggregate this stuff, I'd have something pretty powerful. And I was uh, tired of flying all around the world and eating airplane food and, and irregular hotel food for people as a, as a computer consultant. So I decided, well, I'll build my own system and try and game the stock market. And this was in the 90s. 
And I figured if I could do that, if I could game the stock market to that degree, then I could uh, retire early, very wealthy. And obviously, I really fucked that up. I think we'd all like to, I think we're all very curious as to how, like your last sentence was very, very intriguing there. Uh, well, I never pursued it, <laughs> right? I mean, I got intrigued by, I ran this, uh, it was hugely expensive. I had to buy a, a one third, a fractional uh, T1 line in order to get the bandwidth in the 90s. And then I did this uh, large run that took me a, a number of years to complete. And I ended up uh, with all kinds of language around sun uh, computers, which was my target, but I got intrigued by all the other language that showed up around the big scary ball in the sky, that sun. And so I, I got diverted and couldn't keep my mind focused on that part of the money part of it. And uh, I was trying to do some other projects at the other at the time. I had this product called Vortex, which allowed humans to read from computers at uh, over 2000 words per minute once you got used to it. Um, and it was working very well, but uh, it was a hard sell because it's a giant paradigm shift. There's no longer the cicadic eye movements. Your, your eyes don't track a particular way. And so uh, it was just difficult to get uh, adoption. And it would have taken me a long time with, um, uh, to pursue that. So I was thinking, well, I'll do the stock market thing. I had people that I knew in Sun Computing, and I should have followed through with it because the data set at that time was large enough that it gave me hints that we were going to be facing the the giant run-up for the tech thing and then the crash. And uh, I just sort of got really diverted into this other aspect of it. So this is really interesting because of something you just said. And I deal with this uh, feels like almost on a daily basis now because of my popularity, uh, because I spend so much time doing content creation and traveling and evangelizing Bitcoin and answering people's questions that I literally have no time to trade. And people <laughs> tell me, well, why are you doing all this? Why aren't you trading? And why aren't you a billionaire? Right. Uh, so it sounds like, oh, well, I have multiple reasons for this. One of them is because I was a trader and I found it unreasonably boring. And um, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Really, you, really, you were really a chartist, though, right? Right. I mean, there, there is excitement, but like your life is significantly more boring as a trader. Now, again, if you need a day job and you are a full time trader and you have a wife and you have kids, I mean, you may want your life, you know, your work life to be kind of boring because your life is somewhat exciting, you know, running around with little kids. Uh, I don't, I, I don't have that. Right. So for me, uh, being a trader was just like, I wanted to have more fun. And the thing is, I'm not like my goal in life isn't to be a billionaire. My goal in life is to enjoy life and have enough money, not to have to worry about money. And because I live very, very frugally. And from what I've seen of your lifestyle, you live in a trailer sometimes, uh, you don't really need that much. And the goal to be a billionaire isn't really on, for everyone. Yeah, and I've, I've never been particularly motivated by money. I've always um, uh, dealt with it. Uh, you know, I'm probably, a, there's probably a psychiatric disease name for the way in which I deal with money, which is if I've got it, I spend it on stuff that interests me at the moment and then go on, right? Universe provides is, is basically the philosophy here. And um, no, I so I understand you live frugally, you live under your means for 30 or 40 years, and you discover that, you, you know, you can have some savings. 
that sort of thing. But uh, being a, a billionaire has never been a particular goal. <laughs> In fact, it would scare the crap out of me. Uh, just having to manage that kind of stuff. Money is a pain in the ass, especially in our society where you've got to be accountable for it, what you do with it, right? Uh, and it brings a level of risk that I just prefer not to deal with. I would love to live in the Star Trek society where we just don't have to screw around with this stuff. And there's much more interesting things to do in any event. But see, I got diverted and that was the thing. It was interest. Money, if you're not, if I was really dumb because I should have decided, oh, well, I really love X, Y, Z. You know, I really love fishing. And so I should have uh, devoted myself to fishing and just let universe take care of itself. Instead, I, I got uh, sidetracked by the idea that money was something in and of itself that had value and then decided to pursue it. But as soon as I found something more interesting in my own work than the money, I diverted because money was essentially boring to me. It, it doesn't hold any real interest. And the guys that manipulate the money up and down, more power to them. Glad they got something to keep them off the street and keep them out of trouble, right? Or mostly out of trouble. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, under the circumstances, it's never been a particular uh, draw for me. Uh, cryptocurrencies are different because they're uh, technologically very interesting and the things you can do with them and the ramifications are quite interesting to think about. But of course, in, you know, in 90s, that was way before Satoshi and all of that. Uh, it, it's just curious about the way it all evolved and the, um, uh, the aspects of the predictive linguistics that I had not anticipated. Gotcha. Right. And uh, we're just going to end this. I know everyone wants to get on with the real topics. And uh, I, I will just have my last comment on this is um, I finally I, th I think I finally fell into something I really like. And this is where you and I uh, are have very similar lives in that my first career was education. My first career was standing on a stage and educating people. I just didn't like the money that I was making. And I hate and I didn't like educating high school kids and young kids. That wasn't for me, but the idea was always there. Standing on stage, being relevant and educating people, that skill set was always there. And now I'm doing it in something that I actually enjoy and not trying to teach a 13-year-old how to do math, which was not fun <laughs> at all. Um, right. This is a little more interesting. Uh, so uh, anyway, so let's move on. Let's talk about the actual web bot. Uh, what did you used to call it back in the day? Uh, no, the the that portion of it that uh, actually went out and get got the the data I called spiders. Okay, uh, you have to understand that when I started this work, I actually in the in the late '80s came up with one of the first networked applications ever, uh, and it ran for 25 years. I wrote it for the uh, Department of Fisheries. It was an automated um, uh, license reporting system from all these outlying areas, it would dial up. It was so uh, uh, simplistic in those days, we had to use uh, 110 uh, B baud modems and it dialed itself up at night. And I ran this, wrote this, the software and it, uh, but it was all networked. It was all um, uh, interconnected self-operating nodes and it, they, it was programmed to deal with failure. So if, if uh, the master node didn't call up the, all of the slave nodes and start polling them as to how many licenses were sold that day and doing the paperwork transitions by a particular time at, at night, then each of the slave nodes in turn would assert itself as the master node and, and take over the whole process. It was really cool. And like I say, it ran for 25 years before they decommissioned it. So, so a lot of my work was entirely pre-internet in that sense, right? 
Um, and uh, but it was it was networking from uh, the get go in terms of uh, uh, writing all of these particular programs. And I was programming in uh, this thing called Prolog, which is a logic um, uh, approach to doing it with predicate calculus. And it simplifies things and gets you through a lot of the um, the crap. Uh, but then there's always the intrusion anymore of, you know, the interface building, et cetera. Oh, sorry. I, I was on mute. Um, okay. So now let's talk about the web bot. So sure. you, um, so you use linguistics. So for me to sum it up and feel free to correct me, you're basically trying to scrape the internet, looking for key language and then, um, and it's that, even no, lamer than that. Okay, let's stop okay, right there. I'm, uh, I can run what I call deterministic. And in that sense, you would be 100% correct. If I were running a deterministic run, I would have a whole long list that might go up to 100,000 words or phrases, each in basically a comma-separated value structure. And we would hunt on those, on those words. And uh, so we would actually, that kind of a run is always certain to pay off. It'll always produce results because you're basically pre-programming it to only find this particular kind of language. What I discovered was that it is feasible to do it in a, in a different way that's a whole lot more fun for me and a whole lot more interesting. All right. And so I would take one or two key bits of language that were surfacing in um, newspapers at the time. Okay. The very first run, I did it off sun computers because it happened to be in both the um, Washington post and the New York times uh, at that same uh, on that same Monday in that particular week that I started. And I said, okay, sun's my, my target. I know it's um, it's um, uh, numeric or it's mnemonic on the, on the stock exchanges SUN. I'll plug it in that way and we'll go look for it. And what it does is it would find any instance of the word sun. Okay. Cause I never discriminated. And then the data set would go, then the, the spider, which is the, nowadays we call it web scraping because you can do it on your server. But at the time I started this, you, your servers were so um, small to begin with that you had to, you had to piggyback on everybody else's, Machinery. Hang on a second. Okay. Hey, quiet. Wow, he really listens. Oh, I think I lost your audio there. Oh, he's on mute. Oh, maybe he doesn't listen. <laughs> Cliff just muted. Uh, hang on a second. I got to go move my truck. Okay, it'll take me. It'll take me about three minutes. Some guys are here, and I have to move my truck. Sure, no problem at all. Hey guys, so you get to deal with me. So you will get to hear a story of how I uh, initially found out about Cliff High. Uh, so uh, back in the day, back in the tone vase, uh, learns about conspiracy, uh, about, uh, you know, the financial, uh, you know, the powers that be and how everything is manipulated and how, you know, um, Ancient aliens are with us, and all this other stuff. The 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 six uh, the few months of the rabbit hole of reading about conspiracies um, at one point uh, landed me on the following website, and I will show it to you. I can't believe this website still exists. Share screen, desktop. Here it is. Um, so that website was called Urban Survival. Uh, 
And uh, this is not a recommendation to read this website by any mean shape or form, right? I'm just letting you guys know how I ran across uh, uh, Cliff High's work. Um, I believe it was around 2009, uh, something like that, like 2008, 2009, like um, just as the crash was ending, I, I was already working on Wall Street. And um, uh, who runs this website? Um, how's his name? Oh, here it is. George Ewer. Um, oh, I can actually mute Cliff. There you go. Um, uh, so anyway, it's just another crazy conspiracy theorist uh, talks about, you know, how uh, it's another gloom and doom site, talks about all of the, all of the possible conspiracies. And at the time, he was very, very heavily reliant on Cliff's work and Cliff's reports. And he would always reference Cliff's reports. And I think I happened to be reading this website, I don't know, for like a few months. Um, hey, I'm, uh, I'm, I muted you, Cliff, so you may want to... Um, Cliff's back. I muted you, Cliff, so you may want to unmute. Nope, got to unmute. There's a uh, upper left-hand corner. Cliff, oh, the, the the microphone button. Yep. Oh, got it. Gotcha. Uh, I was just telling uh, our audience how I ran across your name back in like late 2009, early 2010, because I happened to be uh, reading the blog called Urban Survival, which I haven't read, I believe, since 2010. Uh, and it was a very uh, conspiracy-centered uh, blog, a lot of doomsday predictions. And at the time, he was reliant on a lot of your work. Uh, and it looked like you guys were friends at the time. Um, are you still um, in touch with this George guy? Or no, I haven't, I haven't talked to George in quite a while. Uh, we had a falling out over cryptocurrencies, okay, and predictions, all right? Um, it's difficult to differentiate, differentiate yourself on the internet, especially as an economist. And uh, my predictive linguistics, however weird and um, uh, woo-woo they were, at least provided a level of differentiation. So it served George's purpose at that time to be associated. But he also got associated with other people that were doing predictives uh, that were based on dreaming, aggregating all kinds of dreams off the internet, aggregating all kinds of conscious language. G getting back real quick to my, my approach, um, what my word, what the uh, what the spiders actually did at the time, spiders actually ran on the individual um, network servers that were there, ate up the data, and responded by sending me a, a data stream. Uh, nowadays, you web scrape. You just have call up the web page on your server, scrape off the stuff you want, feed it into your your processing, and off you go. But my my approach would be to find a particular language, and then read back so that I would have, and then forward so that I would have a total of 2058, that was just the limit in size, words around my particular target word. And then every link that was within that page, regardless of whether it was associated with those target words or not directly, was followed. This was way before advertising took over everything, right? And so uh, I had a limit of 256 uh, links it could follow from any given page. Then it would come back and start and go ahead and do it again. It's tedious as as you can imagine, just uh, for these things to go and do all the reading, come back and start all over. 
And all it did was basically count on serendipitous behavior on humans and their writing. And so I would get weird juxtapositions, weird sets of words around my particular target word, as opposed to what would otherwise be a predictable set around my target word, especially within the realm of economics. If you think about it, Every article you read about financing, economics, trading, or whatever uses basically the same subset of words to describe a different target or emphasis that they're talking about. Rarely do you, you would you read words about you know uh, the beauty of sunlight on the ocean in an article about anything dealing with finance. So you see the point, right? I actually ended up with a serendipitous uh, blending of language and then I would think, okay, given the parameters of the, of the algorithm that I wrote, why are these two things associated within this one set? And that's basically what led into the interpretation of it all. Now with George Ure, he, he got involved with these people that were doing predictive analysis based on a psychological understanding of dream states. They were attempting to aggregate uh, dreams as they're reported on the internet into some kind of a large database and make predictions that way. And he was of the opinion that, well, when he actually wrote an article that said, uh, Mount, when Mount Gox blew up a number of years later, that said all the exchanges would be shut down within three years. And he had argued extensively prior to that time, because I introduced him to the concept of Bitcoin in 2009. Um, and uh, by 2010, we started having some level of upset about the issue of a replacement for the dollar that was not gold or silver. And his position was such that he thought that cryptocurrencies were a government conspiracy to take us away from the true solution. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure. But it wasn't as though um, uh, we had a particular falling out about it. It was just that we grew apart, so to speak, in terms of our perspective. I kept seeing high emotional language uh, around cryptocurrencies that I'd never seen around or had initially seen around gold and silver that had faded by about 2006. And it was, it was flattening out. This emotional component is a series of, uh, it's a multidimensional array that I attach to words that have a capacity to carry emotion. Not all words carry emotion, right? Um, phrases do, et cetera. We can get into the linguistics of it, but I would attach it. I just arbitrarily chose a number and put it in place and said, okay, I think this particular word relates to fear this way. And if fear is a 10, then this word's got to be a seven. And, the, and then I would just do these emotional sums. And over time, I started to use this feedback loop where I would examine the words that actually appeared that had been based on that uh, projection. And then I would alter the uh, word relationship in the emotions. Now, just like the um, uh, anybody who ages, I am aging away from a current level of emotional understanding of words. And so your generation, the generation that follows you, et cetera, you're gonna have an entirely different emotional relationship to words than I do. And my system is based in, in huge part on my particular perception of these words and their emotional impact um, uh, on humans. And so uh, I would have a, I, and you can, we can get into how it works with slang, et cetera, just bore the crap out of most people, but slang evolves because basically it's not your father's emotion attached to a word you're trying to convey. And so 
under those circumstances, it's all based on an emotional thing that I'm aging away from. So naturally, my system will depreciate over time. Right. So, so there's a couple of things that you said there. So, um, but it sounds like a lot of this relies on your interpretation of a meaning of a word, right? Because you assign, you personally assign certain values to certain words, and you treat those words as more critical to the output of the web bot then let's say if I decided to rank words, uh, wouldn't the results be completely different? So a lot of it yeah. uh, depends on your view of the world and your understanding of the world and uh, results tailored to that. Correct. That's quite correct. <clears throat> Prior to this time, <clears throat> excuse me. Prior to this time, it has not been, well, okay. Now uh, let's say that I've had uh, help in assigning values to words over time. Okay, but that help, that assistance has necessarily been individuals here and there that have participated when I uh, brought in languages other than English. And um, all right, so I've, ha I've had help in defining uh, what an emotional, uh, emotional value is relative to the language that it's uh, trying, to, is trying to convey it. But prior to this time, it hasn't been feasible uh, for us to build an aggregate uh, approach to that process. Now we could do a wiki kind of a thing where you had potentially millions of people contributing what they thought was the emotional uh, component uh, to a word, how much emotion and what it, it carried. Uh, but it's not as though I'm doing this in isolation because this has uh, been an area that's been studied uh, extensively from probably the 1920s and a number of people have systematically approached this and have devised uh, systemic models that I used. And then it wasn't as though I went through individual words and did this because I did it in algorithms that were uh, within Prolog and they, they would first start on word frequency, then I would discriminate on word type, you know, preposition, adverb, adjective, noun, verb, et cetera, and uh, discriminate further on down. And I applied things like, um, uh, Pluchik's uh, wheel of emotions that I added another layer to in order to uh, assign it to uh, body mechanics. So I've lived in a number of societies. One of the things that makes my particular approach unique is that I've seen the world's social order from uh, living within it all around the planet as a kid. And so I understand that there are certain common things within language that are, are expressions really of human body type uh, physiology and how we work. So we carry fear and a lot of emotions in our gut. And so if you see associations of words that have emotions, words that have particular human body parts and particular um, nouns or verbs that are descriptors about uh, objects or items, then perhaps there's a psychic link that's developing and people are leaking this out. So, so this is where it gets into the really woo-woo part of this, right? I don't really care much about conscious language because conscious language is basically all about the past. The minute you, you start speaking something, it's into the past. You're describing something that's uh, very soon going to be in the past. And what I was concerned with was what was going to happen in the future. And that, that became the motivation for finding out what would happen with stock market crap, right? Which way was a, the sun stock going to go? Was it going to go up? Was there a big emotional push behind it? Or was it going to go down? In order to get that, I needed to get at that particular layer within humanity that leaks out all of this um, psychic information. The reason it leaks it out 
is because we are indeed all psychic. Most of us don't even uh, think about it. All of our brains are built as pattern matching machineries, wetware to do nothing but predict patterns to keep us alive in the future. Uh, and uh, they operate off of our senses. The senses are tied into the body. You can make certain assumptions about, about what's going to happen based on how emotions carry through in people. So think of it this way. You're in a theater. Uh, it's dark. Uh, you're watching a scary movie. Everybody is in an obviously manipulated emotional state in a horror film to get the emotions to a particular level. And it's going to center, if you've ever thought about it, if you're self-aware, it's going to center in your from your abdomen on down. The horror movie is going to affect your breathing. It's going to affect your, your guts. And this is independent of the culture that's watching that movie and the dialogue that's coming across on it. Uh, Hindus that are watching a horror movie in a movie theater in India will feel pretty much the same response to that same movie that as you will if you were watching it in this theater in the same circumstance in, in, a, in, the, in the US, in, the, in your culture. The culture is immaterial to how we as humans relate to the emotions that are, that are being uh, manipulated or brought up organically. So here you're in a manipulated environment with emotions. You're, they're all heightened. Your gut is tense. Your breathing is shallow. Uh, there's, there's hormones being created by the fear you're feeling, even though it's secondary and being transmitted through your eyes. There's a lot of uh, flashing lights involved. Sound's been escalating. And your tense is all hell. And all of a sudden, three rows over from you, a woman screams like bloody murder uh, because something ran across her foot. Okay. And she looks down and sees that's, or she thinks something ran across her foot. She looks down and thinks she sees a rat and she's just screaming like all hell in this movie theater. Well, the next thing you know, everybody's shouting fire and trying to get out of the movie theater. It's a predictable response to the, the escalation of the emotion within that particular setting. I'm saying that that same, and that's, that's pretty so much. How, how do you capture that? This is, this is what I'm curious about. How, how do you capture the unconscious uh, thinking of people? Okay. All right. Our, so, uh, so what scraping AI. Okay. Here's the deal. It, I don't, I don't buy this model that there's conscious and unconscious. We needn't get into that in order for me to, to tell you how this is done. Okay. The, um, the capture of the emotion is based to a certain extent on the serendipitous aspect of this, but it's based more on how humans really work, how we are in our brains. So as a trader, if you're working in an office with other traders, you're going to find that your language concentrates around, let's say, uh, 25,000 words in a year. All you're going to ever use is 25,000 words. Out of those 25,000 words, maybe six or 7,000 are going to be trading specific words that you use daily. And, but out of that, out of those 25,000 words, you'll find that your weekly use of words is a very finite subset and it's always attached to specific contexts. So if you were to use an, a word that was out of those 25,000, out of your usual range, then there's something that is prompting you to do so. Most humans that are, or most people that are English, native English speakers will have internalized somewhere between 80,000 and 125,000 English words by the time they're in their 30s as adults. And so they have that complete range of language to use, but we rarely do it. 
And so under the circumstances, uh, uh, what I do is I, I have the same conversations. I have a model of a conversation that uh, actually occurred in gardening forums. And I'm able to go over time, which is what the first couple of years were spent doing with these things I call propagation studies and uh, find out what language was being used in what forum uh, around what subject. And then if I sweep that same forum a couple of weeks later and I find out there's new language that had never appeared in the last two years, then I can assign some level of meaning to the appearance of that language. Whether that meaning is valid, whether the assignment level is valid is, is open to debate. And sometimes it is accurate when I apply it a particular way and sometimes not. Okay, so there's a whole lot of science and art and figuring out why that works sometimes and why it doesn't work other times. But, but you see what I'm saying is that the basic model of people talking in the gardening forum about soil conditions and soil um, mediation uh, techniques uh, shouldn't involve anything other than these 2,500 words. And when we get to a situation where there's uh, words outside of that set and they're way outside of that set, then, then one really must wonder what is prompting that. Okay, um, sure. Now, obviously I am very, very skeptical uh, of all of this and it's uh, impossible for me to debate this scientifically. And I'm not sure if there's anyone that's actually capable of debating this scientifically. Uh, but um, having said that, um, my last question before we move on to the specifics of your reports is why are you the person to get this done and not someone else? I don't understand the question. Um, so why should people uh, trust in you to be the best person to write an, an AI like this versus, let's say, Watson from IBM? Um, no reason they should. None whatsoever. I'm just doing this. So here's my deal, right? This particularly onerous work. When I started this in the in the uh, late '90s, um, I, you know, I ended up getting in basically into a line of shit for ten years. I had people giving me shit for ten years about this, and that's fine. I don't care. My my point of doing it was for my own purposes. The fact that I that I uh, had to make it economic and and sell it uh, is secondary to what's going on. But here's the thing. Um, I've coded for a lot of different, different industries. Okay. I've, so I understand the needs of people to have, uh, outliers as predictors for very different kinds of, uh, reasons. And so, uh, consider it this way. If you were an insurance company, you were heavily invested in, um, uh, earthquake insurance or tidal wave insurance or, or tidal aberration insurance or tsunami insurance. And uh, it cost you $400 a year to get a report that uh, may uh, provide you with some hint that there's going to be a tsunami in an area uh, that year. Is that $400 worth it to you? Even if the odds when calculating them like uh, the casinos do, uh, when the odds of that occurrence uh, actually happening are extremely low. So it, it has to do with hazard versus um, outrage kind of things in risk management, right? Um, there's, there's two aspects of this. Well, okay, so in terms of trusting me, no one should. I was doing it just to make sure or to see if indeed the process was worthwhile. 
I know that people make predictions all the time. I know that predictions come true the vast majority of times that we end up actually concentrating and making them. I also know that um, we've had some success of doing things like remote viewing and so on. And to a certain extent, this is, is kind of an, a back-end uh, back approach to that. Uh, but uh, some industries like insurance companies, if they knew that Banda Aci was going to happen and they were heavily invested in insuring Banda Aci, then uh, a small in, um, cost over time that they can write off on their taxes is uh, trivial compared to the eventual or to a potential uh, for avoiding a very large loss. And that's really the uh, the fundamental economic case for doing it. There's no real reason for it at all. I have had a track record of some rather spectacular successes. So five months out before the sinking of the cost of Concordia, I was able to predict uh, over 65% of the language that appeared on that day of that sinking in the, in the major media around the planet. So of the core language that reported, of the core 500 words that reported the sinking of the cost of Concordia, I had 65% of those things predicted five months early. Of the language that was the defining language for the Banda Aci earthquake, I had that predicted eight months earlier. So under the circumstances, those spectacular hits have a tendency to make it pay, so to speak. With Bitcoin, I was able to to describe, because the data showed it, this curious little loop three times from 408 to 428 with jumps around it, but then back to the 408, 428. And then once it was done with that, it left 4, 428. So that was worth it to a number of people because they ended up making a lot of money as, as a result of that. I was able to predict the accurately the uh, manifestation of events in Bitcoin around the number 650, even though my timing was was off by six weeks. So I had this particular prediction set that was around Bitcoin. It was around Bitcoin behaving in a particular way in terms of the price action at 650. And it, and it related in my, lang in, in my work to the language that I was forecasting because the language that was appearing was suggesting there was going to be a, a, a flurry or um, an outbreak of new words around Bitcoin when it did this particular kind of action at 650. And my problem was that I was using particular metrics that had placed it six weeks later than it actually manifest. Once it started manifesting, I knew we were into that data set because I use set theory here, fuzzy set mathematics. And it, uh, it actually started manifesting, as I had said, it was just six weeks early. So timing aside, the sequence of the events and the uh, range of which it moved were extremely accurate. So to some extent, that's why you should trust it. I don't I don't trust it per se myself. You know, I'm not doing this as a trader. I don't, uh, if I were going to do trading, I would do um, uh, like technicals, I think they call it, you know, I just do it off of charts because price action is independent of the underlying objects. Yeah, well, that, that's pretty much what I do with the charts. Um, all right, so on that note, um, let's go ahead and jump uh, into your recent report. I read it over last night. And um, I highlighted a couple of things just so I can understand um, how it's functioning and um, how things uh, in that report are structured. Uh, give me one second here. I want to make sure that um, since it is a paid report, I want to make sure that I only show the sections that I want the audience 
to see and then uh, we would take it from there. So on that note, let me do screen share here. So this is the report. That's the, that would be the front page of the report. And um, that report is structured. Uh, so there were two sections kind of more uh, global and macro. And after that, you dove into each of the cryptocurrencies one by one. So um, that was the first time I ever read one of your reports. And um, it was like, just, just so like the readers understand, um, let me, uh, let's do this one piece at a time, I guess, instead of showing all the section at once. So if I do this, there we go. Um, and we'll look at just the first part, right? So I just want to read the section in yellow. This will be an audio, um, recording as well. Um, so, uh, that's one of the reasons. So the, the part in yellow reads. There are sets about claims that medicine healing is the work of the devil that will be able to be used as temporal markets for the rise of anti-healing technology terrorism. Um, somewhat more interesting and a great deal more encouraging are subsets suggesting that local populations um, served by the hospitals uh, slash clinics are going to become enraged and will successfully fight back and gain fame for stopping uh, parentheses cold um, the planet the planned attack so uh, just a couple of things here and the audio unfortunately the audio viewers won't see this so some parts of that part of a paragraph have single quotes around them and some parts have parentheses so from my understanding the parts and single quotes is the linguistics that gets spat out by your computer and Correct. the parts in parentheses are your context that you are adding based on your interpretation of what um, the computer is spitting out. Uh, correct. The, um, the part that's in um, uh, parentheses is basically connecting language, right? I try and keep that as minimal as possible. Wherever possible, I try and use words that are within the set uh, in which that appears. So look down there, it says stopping cold. Both of those words are within the single quotes. The word cold is in uh, parentheses as well. And what we're looking at here is uh, stopping was a, uh, in a word cloud kind of a fashion, it had more oomph behind it within the set, but I needed to have a transition from stopping the planned attacks because that didn't, stopping the planned attacks does not have the um, uh, value that is brought by the cold being used uh, in this particular um, adverbial fashion, okay? And cold was within that set. But some of these others, um, like up there is the, of the, those are the words that I'm just trying to put in uh, to connect because it's rather tedious to read these uh, without them. Bear in mind that my natural language processing that's done uh, by my software does not reconstruct the language into uh, sentences. It brings it into sets that are, that have a lot of emotional values that are numeric around them. Okay. So now, there's a lot of different interpretations that can come from this though. 
You know, I can think of a half a dozen easily as to how these this language could play out under various circumstances uh, based on whether or not uh, the language is coming out of particular cultural influences. So you could see clinics being attacked in uh, more primitive backwater uh, areas or in other areas and so on uh, based on the cultural conditions that exist there at the time. That's why it's a uh, forecast for language coming out about events, not really as much a, a forecast about the reasons behind that. We have some context from which this is taken to uh, apply, but that's the best I've got is that context in terms of at least um, uh, framing the language that's coming out. All right. So let's, um, so, but, but all the text around things in single quotes, is that also um, your interpretation or is that, so, that I mean, that's you so writing the report, right? So correct, uh, like, correct. Okay. So the following sentence it says a number of sets emerge forecasting, uh, and then it goes on. Well, right. I have to put in there a descriptor right. about uh, this other number of sets that are that are related because showing just showing pictures of word clouds with lines between them would be meaningless to people. Right. Okay. So so your so your bot does like spit out a set of words. Is it in context or is it like in groups that you refer to as data? It's in a, it's in a predicate calculus format and, it, and to a great extent, it, it's rather tedious to read because it's, you have to read it as in, uh, it's all separated either by uh, commas or colons. And so the first thing that comes out is the context in which the language was discovered by the uh, scraping process. And so this area here, there, the context or their medicine healing is a context. There's also a context within here for uh, religion, which is where the devil stuff comes in. Um, and, and, the, and so those are the context in which this language was, was uh, captured, so to speak. So I try and I, I'll have to basically provide that context for the predictive level of language. Not all language carries, all language can carry emotions absent uh, articles and, uh, you know, some prepositions and so on. Uh, but uh, not all language is necessarily uh, predictive or, or prescient at all. All right. So, so that first one was more of a teaser into understanding um, what text people see on the screen comes from the bot, which is uh, single quotes, uh, what language you add uh, to help a reader understand what the bot is saying, which is the stuff in parentheses, and then uh, anything that's not in parentheses and not in single quotes is basically you presenting uh, a readable format to the reader. Correct. Okay. So now let's talk about something that I would love an explanation on and see how you interpret it. And um, I, I forgot what page this is on because I'm just like pulling out sections. And it says, talks about space battles in the midsummer involving Antarctica and several other things. So, so what do you foresee happening? Um, a space battle over Antarctica? See, that's okay. Um, the, the context is uh, Antarctica. The context, in context includes uh, military. And the context in this case is space focused. But the, the language, the way in which it's pulling it out, the context... We have, we have the uh, context 
in one set of being um, military in space and the other we have the battles and then we have a further context of antarctica each of these sets are intersected in the set that was returned so one interpretation could be that indeed we would have a um uh, some form of a space battle over antarctica uh, in which case we're hardly ever likely to uh, to hear about it right i mean they're just not going to tell us this Oh, hang on a second. That's okay. That's right. Um, uh, but uh, the space battle itself might well uh, involve simply language coming out from the U.S. military, perhaps directed by the U.S. Navy, about the need for the United States to maintain some form of militarization of Antarctica. And they may cite the idea that we're going to be ending up having uh, space wars or have battles in space as their justification for for justifying the or for uh, promoting the idea of militarization of Antarctica. So there's a couple of interpretations. We could be attacked by space aliens and have to respond. I doubt that's the interpretation that will actually manifest. It's much more likely that something as prosaic as the uh, the military industrial complex wanting a new outlet and new money. Uh, is likely to manifest, in which case this thing is very prescient indeed, that it might be the um, escalation of the uh, uh, militarization of Antarctica, right? And again, it might simply be that they're going to use space battles to do it. Now, the timing clues come uh, because some language is immediate. Uh, slang, for instance, the emotional impact is of an immediacy, uh, nature, which is like three days out to three weeks. Short-term data goes from three weeks out to the end of the, the third month, and long-term data is from the fourth month onward. And so we can, I can say at the time that I gathered the data that the, there was a lot of short-term language in this that indicated that about midsummer we would see the peak of it. I do my displays as scatter graphs. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it shows the sets and the words as they appear. And I can track across on my x-axis, I can track time. And then I say that, oh, it'll be midsummer because that's when the biggest bulge of this data appears, and I'm just making a guess that it'll show up in midsummer. Obviously, uh, my guess here in terms of the timing on 1388 as being the uh, new floor was wrong. The bulge of the language showed up in the third week in February. It kept going until the end of March and trails off very much all this language in the sets in terms of its appearance, mostly trails off as generalized sort of bell curves with a with a a uh, very nice flattening, uh, fading effect on them. And so for timing, I don't have anything more precise to go on than the biggest bulge of the bell curve. And in the past, it's been somewhat realistic. So I, I get a lot of shit for my timing being off, but uh, frequently the timing, <laughs> absent the timing, the description is actually quite accurate. Okay, and um, let's uh, let's glance at one more real quick. I do want to move on to the 2010 report as well, um, but I have a couple of more things on this one. I do want to get to your Bitcoin predictions and altcoin predictions as well. Um, figure hopefully you can give me like another half an hour and then we sure. can- Sure, uh, yeah, I can do that, yeah. Excellent. Um, so one more, it says the reaching sets that accrue across all of March are filled with examination, in quotes, and old history, in quotes, and past acts, in quotes, and stale news, in quotes. Um, sets that are themselves filled with indicators 
for a re-examination uh, of old information, both in quotes, in process of integration, in quotes, prior to moving onward. Um, you, you, I'm not sure how a person is to interpret this because this like just sounds very, very cryptic. Yeah, I understand that. Okay. Um, uh, there are some things that I have to put into the reports that I don't have a lot of understanding myself, but that I do have very high emotional values that are showing up on the, on the language, uh, making me think at the time that the report is written that that particular language is going to end up being important. And what I'm looking for is language that has an emotional uh, tone shift that gets it to um, uh, a point beyond uh, a median. And anything that is showing up over that in the past has proved to be prescient, absent timing. And so the reaching, I don't, we could, there's a lot of different language around reaching, grasping, and all of these kind of things. So it, it is a, um, uh, a descriptor of the emotional flow of what's likely to be occurring. So one way to interpret this would be that if one were, say, a, um, a, a trader, let's just keep that as, a, as our metaphoric view, then if one is in the trading business, you may find that this is not going to feel like it did in previous years relative to doing trading on stocks or Bitcoin or any of this other sort of stuff, that there's going to be a... Uh, the, those words that were used, a reaching as opposed to a mellowing out in summer, right? So instead of, you know, what is the term sell in May and go away and play and all that kind of stuff, yes. uh, we're going to find instead that there's going to be a heightened emotional intensity. More people will be at work. More of the work will be seeing language. Hey, hey. Oh, I lost your audio there, Cliff. I, I'm still here. Here we go. Ah, excellent. Okay. Perfect. So more of the people will be at their work and they'll be seeing language that will be ref reflecting old stories and old history being brought back up. Uh, this is, in our, in our experience of reality, this is not a, a meaningless uh, coincidence. Okay, so when you see that uh, your area, your uh, time period is being dominated by old stories that are coming up, old things that are being uh, brought up as news and re-examined, there is a reason behind that in terms of the manifestation of things over time. And so if one pays attention, and for instance, uh, one of the things that we're going to see is a re-examination of a lot of the uh, JFK and um, ex other presidential kind of behaviors and uh, historical periods of time. Now, the why of that will become apparent to us as we go forward. And it, and it is though there is a metaphor or a meme moving through time that is expressing itself and humans are part of that expression. That's the, and I put the language in because even though it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to me at the time, those words had a very uh, large increase in emotional values in an extremely short period of time. And so I, they're, they're describing the, to, the, the emotional flow and how we're going to feel about that emotional flow as we go forward. This actually makes some of the guys that read this that are in fact in trading and so forth, uh, love this level of information. And they, they like knowing that, oh, look, 
if I was going to go and slack off for a couple of months and go out to the Hamptons or whatever, this is not necessarily the particular time of year to do it because there's going to be all this activity going on and a lot more people at the office, et cetera. Right. Okay. Give me one second. I'm putting together other screenshots uh, that we, that I would actually like to talk about in this report, which is, which is on the verge of bringing us over uh, to Bitcoin. Okay, uh, let me get back to, let me do this and get back to 100% or 50%. And um, one second here, perfect. And um, here it is, and I'm about to do screen share. All right, so let's, um, let's jump back into screen share. I'm gonna share an application and this should work. Okay, so uh, before we get to Bitcoin, uh, maybe you could comment on a couple of other things I highlighted. I mean, it was a 35 page report. I had to, um, okay, we're good. Uh, it was a th- I have to like, just pick and choose a couple of things. I just wanna read them for the audio pod- podcasters as well. Um, other new sets accruing to crypto space as model space is moved across March into April and dominated by the quote teaching, comma quote educate educating and other sets of increasing awareness of the cryptocurrency and crypto space technology um, at the impact on society levels. That sounds like my job actually <laughs> got uh, got very well covered in your report. It's uh, just those sets that have been highlighted on teaching and educating since um, have to be October of last year or earlier, as there's going to be a big wave, all right? So you have to understand that the data looked at in a large aggregation uh, fashion and a big view would tend to uh, favor the idea that there's sociological impetus for us to adopt cryptocurrencies over the fiat over what is basically a dying system. So it's fair to characterize the idea that I'm of the opinion that cryptocurrencies have some level of support from the powers that be um, as a replacement for the central banking uh, uh, proposition that runs our our social order at the moment. And this is an outgrowth of that. Uh, The largest single barrier to uh, adoption is going to be education. And so that's the next wave. Now, it's also fair to say that the uh, recent um, uh, shift into how people are discussing cryptocurrencies uh, is starting to favor the language that I was highlighting back in October of last year. In other words, we're starting to see manifest in reality a lot of language about, or or that was a forecast in October of last year about the subject of educating people on how to use it, what it is, and this sort of thing. Okay. And I have to ask about the space space uh, section of the report. uh, And I'll just read the first sentence. It is difficult to locate the cryptocurrency specific data within the very large quote space set as, as many be as uh, I think you mean may, sorry, as may be expected. Um, lots of these sets have woo-woo, parentheses, UFOs, and other tangentially interesting, subs- in- interesting subsets that tend to obscure the developing cryptocurrencies in space sets. Uh, so 
actually a big chunk of your report talks about cryptocurrencies in space. Uh, why do you think that is? Um, there's been in like the last four years, maybe five years, there's been a, a steady uh, increase in the amount of language that's appearing in all forms uh, coming out of media, which, which is uh, both legacy and um, independent that's focused on space. And so we're, and also curiously, of course, we're getting all of these strange effects that are, that are happening out of space. So you get a meteor that lands in Michigan and you get a lot of people talking about space as a result. And then we get that um, juxtaposition of that language in with other language that my process is getting at the time that it's doing the web scraping. Uh, so it's somewhat predictable that a major social move into space is going to uh, cause these effects within my data sets. It's also somewhat predictable that um, successes in commercialization of, of space, especially with personalities like uh, Elon Musk, are going to increase the amount of language that can be associated in the process that I go through between cryptocurrencies and the subject of the success in space. Does that make sense? Um, not, not really, but uh, kind of. But here, here's, my, here's my potential explanation. Is that for the last six plus months, there's been a lot of hype uh, in Bitcoin because of a project from Blockstream that will put nodes in space in order to make Bitcoin transactions not dependent on the internet and uh, potentially get around the censorship of the internet in order to get your uh, Bitcoin transactions done. Uh, there's been a lot of articles written about this and a lot of people are very excited about this. Uh, in addition, everyone seems to be excited for Elon Musk's SpaceX. So is it possible that like, uh, a lot of the things that you report are your potential interpretations uh, while there are real Certainly. Oh, okay. Sure, sure, sure. You're quite correct. Okay, look at it this way. Uh, when, when we examine it that way, um, I'm the one that chooses to look at certain areas within the data sets that are being reported. I get uh, the first, uh, as a routine, I will throw out maybe... I know I will throw out over 70 million reads, 70 million uh, inputs from the data sets will be thrown out because they're too polluted by advertising or some other me uh, mechanism is intruded in the data. Those that end up in the millions of, of words that are aggregated by the web scraping are presented to me in a fashion that looks very much like a, um, uh, a pixelation of a screen uh, of, uh, of your screen. All I'm doing is concentrating on those that have colors I've already previously associated with emotionally hot areas. So space is an emotionally hot area. And uh, curiously, oceans are a rising emotionally hot area within our data sets. And so I'm going to look at those more than I'm going to look at uh, data sets that are bringing back uh, a new language about the tire business. Make sense? There's not an, an emotional hotness to the tire business. It's not uh, rising in value emotionally within my data the way that the space-based business is. Anything that humans get uh, excited about 
and have this extra oomph in the language by stepping outside of their normal linguistic um, balloons and looking and using other language that they would find uh, that they would use less frequently, I'm going to see as a level of emotional hotness uh, rising around that subject. And I'm going to look at those subjects more often than I'm going to look at the other subjects, just because there's so much of it. Uh, so I could concentrate on the tire and the rubber and the oil business. And then I could refine all of that and just only look at those sets and use the same metrics. But within those areas, I'm going to look at the hot, emotional, emotionally hot areas within the, that particular niche. What we have here is me looking at the emotionally hot areas in a very broad uh, context picture. But I would still use the same technique even if it was narrow. In fact, okay. I'd planned on using that for doing stocks. The idea was that I would look at uh, a particular sector and then I would see the emotionally rising values around particular stock uh, language. And then I would go buy that ahead of, it was a way to do front running back before high frequency, right? Correct. Um, all right, so let's uh, let's jump into what uh, a lot of my readers are very curious about. Your uh, prediction on the price of Bitcoin, because that's the number one reason why people tune into my channel. And um, so in your latest report, uh, this is a part of your uh, Bitcoin section, uh, ju just uh, the part that I found interesting because it had all those eights in it. And um, you also talk about um, numerous altcoins individually, probably about 12 of them, probably about a dozen um, other altcoins specifically. I'm not going to pull up anything from there. Uh, ju just going to talk about Bitcoin where uh, you had a prediction of uh, 13,888. Now, I'm not going to give you a hard time about um, uh, predicting the price of Bitcoin that didn't materialize. I mean, I do that every single day. No, no, no. Um, I was correct. Bitcoin went over 13,888. I was just wrong on the timing. In February of no, this no. year? No, 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 no. See, there's the thing. I had said that, the, that we would have language about it that would be showing up in February. But the fact is Bitcoin reached 13,888 sometime in December, correct? Uh, I, I think even earlier than that. but Maybe uh, November, right. Okay, right. well, I made I first the set for 13,880 is how I characterize it. That showed up in in November a year previous. Right, okay. so, oh, oh, so, so this wasn't from your January report uh, talking about... Well, you have to understand how this stuff works. Okay, here's the deal. Yes, it was. All right, so you get, I rarely get numbers. When numbers come through, they don't come through as the numeric digits that you're seeing there. The only thing that gets through my processing has to arrive in the form of a text. So it would be 13,888 all written out as those numbers in a, a particular format within my long list of words that the um, web scraping is, is uh, bringing back to me. Those, uh, some of those language, some of the numeric language I report because it has an emotional peg to it. And then it forms or it, it has a set of language around it. So that 13888 showed up in November of 2016, I think was when I reported it, when I first talked about it. In January of 2017, I talked about 13888 for Bitcoin in. February of 2018, because that was my timing guess on it at that time. I also oh, spoke about, about January 2017 or January 2018? January 2017. But I first I, I talked see. about it online in interviews 
in November of 2016, well a, a year uh, ahead of its reaching anything close to those. I was talking about it at that level when Bitcoin was in the seven and eight hundreds. And then as we moved into January of 2017, where Bitcoin was about a thousand, I, I had that set show up with more uh, data around 13.888, and it brought in Ethereum and Ripple with short-term and immediacy values. And so I casually made a comment on Greg Hunter's show of that particular time uh, that, oh yeah, if you wanna make some money, buy Ethereum and Ripple, it's gonna have a nice short-term pop, which it did. It was a big rush up on those two coins. And the 13.88 was the set in which that was discovered. So. If, if, for instance, as an examiner, you had a set of, say, 25 words that were, you thought might be predictive, and two or three of those words actually showed up uh, within a th two or three week period of your making a prediction about those words, then you would have a tendency to give more credence to the other words in that set. And over the rest of that year, 2017, those words kept popping up in the media at at, and those that were associated with price points kept happening. And so I had a lot of confidence in the 13.888 prediction. And, now, and, and it, I'm sorry, and how does the February 11th, 2018 date come into play in this? Okay, February 11th, 2018. Okay, um, the uh, predictive value of the language in the set when 13.88 first appeared in 2016 had long-term data associations with it that in my model space showed that it would be predicted to appear in the end of, or in the third week of February in 2018. The bulge for that language first showed up as about February 11th, but I never trust day level granularity. And then it continued until that set faded off in March 31 of 2018, based on the long-term data as the, the time metric. And obviously the long-term data sets were uh, inaccurate in terms of their uh, projection. Had I, had I brought that forward and said, oh, we'll be at 1388 in November of 2017, then it would have been much more accurate. Now, oh, you could have also said before February 11, 2018. Correct, correct, correct. But see, I'm trying to, and I, I, I use words inappropriately because I get all in a rush at times. And I should say that, well, the range shows here and there's more, more of a density at this point in the bulge. And so it looks like it's in this particular area. But I just pick a date that, that seems to make sense relative to the data, not necessarily making sense relative to the external world. So that's why we end up with February 11th through March 31st as the largest point of that bulge. But 1388 So, so you're trying to interpret a date from a bunch of uh, googly gook that comes out of the computer. Not gobbledygook, okay? I'm trying to interpret a date because look, all right. Um, I'll give you three examples. All right, so here's three types of language, immediacy language, uh, short-term language, and long-term language. They all, it's the, the context is the same, the information being conveyed is the same, but there's an emotional difference between them that alters the time value of each of these three examples. So the immediacy or the, the long-term language. Uh, in the court proceedings, my soon-to-be ex-wife was given possession of my vehicle by the judge. 
You understand that sentence, okay? Yes. Okay, so that's long-term language. Okay, so short-term language on that same subject. Uh, when I went to court, uh, the judge gave my ex-wife my ride. Okay, that's short-term language. Same subject, same context, and so on. But it's entirely different in terms of how, how a person interprets what's going on. And then the immediacy language is, uh, the bitch jacked my ride uh, in the divorce. Okay, entirely different language sets and entirely different temporal response to that language to those people that are aware of their temporal responses to language. Not everyone is at, a, at any kind of a, an aware or visceral level. So if I have long-term language, I'm basically making a guess as to how far out that language is going to manifest uh, in reality. And, but the subject matter appears, you know, the context appears. So we did have Bitcoin at 13888. I was just wildly off on my time for that. And, and I'm not a, um, a chartist in that sense. So I'm doing my best to pick up on the language. And you're correct. I should have said before we would have a manifestation before February 11th of this particular price range. But um, as I was saying way back when, when I first started doing this for stocks, I never even considered the idea of shorting stocks. I was always after appropriate pegs for uh, high values so that I could make decisions about them, not ever thinking about using the software to do the modeling for the decisions itself, right? To tell me when to, to, to buy low and sell high. I just, just was basically targeting the high levels, not ever thinking about, oh, well, if it's going to reach a high, it's got to come back down from that. So now in this case, we also know that um, recently there have been, uh, you know, it's a small market, it's easily manipulated, and there have been some major manipulations that have gone on in the Bitcoin um, space here recently. And Bitcoin is a really weird kind of a thing because it's not being used as a commodity, as a, as a currency. It's being used as a store of value. So I suspect that the... Um, Okay, it is my suspicion and my opinion that the influences that have been put out in terms of manipulating the Bitcoin world that produced our current price situation at the moment are going to fade and not be able to be maintained by those manipulators. And why they're manipulating is just would be entirely speculation on anyone's part if they weren't part of the group that's actually doing it. But we know that Bitcoin lost 45% from its high. And that was okay. It usually does that, right? That's a predictable chartist kind of guys know that Bitcoin has these 40% drops. They buy at the bottom of the 40% drops or as close as they can get to it. They buy on the way down and then they write it all the way back up. And then some of them use leverage and make a lot of money and this kind of thing. But Bitcoin then went up a little bit and then it sustained another 45% drop. Totally atypical to its patterns that it's ever expressed before. And then even more strange, uh, Bitcoin went back up a little bit more and then it dropped 35%. Never has Bitcoin done this before. And so it's, it's obviously broken loose or, or the pattern has been disrupted by some kind of an outside force. And we don't know just yet what's going to occur relative to those two uh, streams of uh, potential within the event. So it did, was Bitcoin's manipulation uh, a specific thing for someone's specific gain, or did Bitcoin actually bust out of its previous patterns? 
I've had some hints in the data sets that Bitcoin would do that. And I wrote about these things in what was known as the crocodile teeth reports, because Bitcoin was the language that was describing Bitcoin making uh, what appear to be crocodile tooth formations within charts. And then at some point that it was going to stop doing that and uh, behave in an entirely different fashion. And that's what I'm actually waiting for is the adoption or the shift when we move out of the uh, speculation realm into the production realm. And there was actually one you can look at if you go back to the 1890s to 1920s period and look at the United States stock market, you can actually follow certain industries that were initially largely speculative and then became industrial giants. And they behaved entirely different after they had consolidation and effect within those industries. So for instance, you could take the automotive industry. At the time we reached the 1890s, there's what we would think of as, as penny shares or even uh, a current model would be ICOs for all kinds of car companies that went bust within those first 10 years of the big push into the automotive industry between 1890 and 1904. And in that period of time, the stocks behaved radically different than they did after the consolidation started leading, uh, you know, first through uh, Duesenbergs and all of these others and ultimately into, you know, Ford Chrysler and, and so on. And so uh, stock markets and all these things evolve as utility enters the space. The reason that this occurs has to do with how humans think of prices. Now people think of prices relative to cryptocurrencies without any regard to potential utility or value or so on. No one has to buy any of the cryptos. Um, um, I can't really think of a use case where you must buy cryptocurrencies, but it's- oh, yeah, no, I, 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 have, I, I know plenty of those. Uh, but uh, most of them surround uh, uh, gray market space. But like, I, I do want to get us- No, no, but even then you don't have to. If you could look, you know, reduce your, your risk of exposure to the downside, you could still use fiat currencies on those, okay? But I'm talking about a specific situation where real soon, for instance, real soon you'll have to buy uh, currencies in order to connect your house to the uh, power grid because the power companies are gonna get away from the idea of always being in arrears with their customers and billing for past acts. And they're gonna start billing for future use on electricity. As that shifts over, in order to have your house get electricity, you'll have to have the currencies. It's the same kind of situation that used to exist in the 1920s and 30s in Britain and existed even into the 40s and 50s in some areas. In those situations, you had to have coins in your pocket as a normal British citizen every single night in order to buy gas to cook and heat with because it was a metered process in your particular domicile. There was no, so, so it was a future use kind of a, an arrangement and the gas company there, uh, which was basically the crown profited enormously on this on a couple of different levels. It was a huge support for their currency because people had to have it in order to have heat to cook and, and live by. We're coming into that situation pretty soon with cryptocurrencies where you will necessarily must buy certain cryptos just to do daily business. When that occurs, speculation leaves and the charts are going to be entirely different in terms of how yeah, those well, cryptocurrencies I'm behave. Not, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to debate that because that would yeah. be a good scenario for Bitcoin. And um, uh, so we'll, we'll leave that one aside. I don't want to get to um, your upcoming views on the price of Bitcoin. So your new price that you are interpreting from the web bot, um, 
is either 2800 or sorry 28000 or 38000 and your best estimate for that time is to be around April no 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 not that they will have manifested by April but that the move that will bring those sets into uh, reality will have occurred by April okay oh, so, so 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 like whatever like the changes in the world that would eventually bring about the price of a $38,000 bitcoin will have played themselves out by April. Correct. That's that's the okay. interpretation of the data sets. Right. Okay. And that actually may turn out to be uh, functional reality if indeed the interpretations of what's going on with the Mt. Gox settlement and all of those Bitcoin is accurate. If that is accurate, then they're no longer able to sell large tranches of those Bitcoin and the downward pressure will have been abated and we'll all realize this as we move in through April. And then the uh, generalized adoption trend for it will occur. Got it. All right. So there you have it, traders. There's your um, there's your hint. Uh, the in the global environment will uh, set a Bitcoin for an eventual move to thirty eight thousand uh, dollars. Can you just briefly mention the dirt space section? Sure. That's real estate. <laughs> It's like, what do you want to know? Real estate is, is hugely confused. It's a very highly emotional area within the, the uh, web scraping. If you um, uh, run your own bots on and just hunt for instances of real estate, you'll see the language appearing constantly and it ebbs and flows just on a frequency level and in a surprising amount within uh, the general discussion of things. And there's a lot of very negative language about uh, real estate. And a lot of it relates to um, uh, regional banks, uh, at least here in the USA. In some areas like Australia, it's relating more to uh, political crises, bribery, and um, uh, what we would think of as a constitutional crisis. Okay, they call it a federation there. And the data sets are linking a federation crises and their real estate markets. Gotcha. All right. And uh, finally, I want to close out this report so we can spend five to 10 minutes to close out this interview by looking at the 2010 report. Maybe I should have started there, but uh, to me, <laughs> that one was fascinating. Um, so this is just um, at the end of your report. <clears throat> this is um, your explanation of logistics and also your statements that you believe everyone has psychic powers and um, you're trying to capture that in your linguistics. Correct. Excellent. Got it. Um, and one last thing um, on this front. So I have to change screen share, actually. So I have to close that. Uh, let me grab your report and, uh, and throw it here. And the viewers won't see that, but um, they will in a second. Um, uh, let me do that. Perfect. Got it. And now I just got to switch the type of um screen share we are doing and i'm gonna do uh this guy and uh, it's uh, at the very end of your report um you provide uh you explain your different sets now what i kind of found interesting is that your short-term forecasting uh between three days and three weeks has an error range of four weeks which is greater than the predictive data set and the same thing for your short term, which is four weeks for up to three months, but an error range of four months. So um, 
So your this, error range is greater than the data set? Can you just Okay, this occurs, that? I think, yes, that is accurate to state, okay? But this occurs, I think, uh, because of the unsettled nature of emotion around uh, slang, okay, and around short-term values. So in, in slang, kids are making up slang constantly. And a lot of slang dies, 99.99% of all slang dies within the first three weeks. It's not adopted, it's not picked up, there's no carry value. I did these things called propagation studies from uh, 1998 through to about 2009, I think was the last time I did them. And I examined some of these uh, uh, mathematics involved with these things okay and so if the language is very unsettled around immediacy language people are trying to express something they don't know how to get it out they will frequently invent slang trying to get out uh that emotional pressure and relieve it on their brain and they they uh language there as far as my being able to trap it and codify it and then examine it and feed it in with the reports some of the language will die before I ever uh, even get a chance to feed it into the reports and other language. I'm making a guess that, oh, well, this is going to be effective within three weeks. And then it'll take two or three cycles of the reports for me to be able to go back and tune it and say, no, no, this is actually shorter term language and it should be out here or it's morphed into shorter term language. Bear in mind, that's the flow of language. Someone creates a slang term. If it gets adopted, it's great. If ultimately their parents start using it, it's blasé from that point, but it's then entered into short term language from its immediacy value is slang. And then, uh, so as soon as your parents start using the slang terms, you're done with it, but then that slang ends up being into the short-term language and it may end up getting picked up by dictionaries. If it gets picked up by dictionaries and goes into general use, it may be in use for years, then it's in long-term language. So the nature of the language shifts over time. It's not static. It's a continually moving target. Thus, my error rate is probably always going to be about 50%. So at least half of the stuff that I've got is going to be wrong. The staggering part of it is, though, that half of it is correct. And if you listen to mainstream science, including those people that do the algorithms for casinos, they're figuring chance between 21 and 22.4%. And so at that level, I'm nearly twice as good as chance. Gotcha. All right, so um, let's uh, shift gears here, and I want to briefly talk about the 2010 report, which I actually purchased. Uh, do you remember how much I paid for it back then? Because I do. Sure, it'd be ten or fifteen dollars. Probably was ten dollars. Good, yeah. um, excellent. It was exact. It was ten dollars. That's how much this report cost me. Um, I had this in my computer. I recently found it, and I'm like, that's right. That's where I remember the name Cliff High. I skimmed it back in 2010 when I got it. I read it over this morning, actually, and I found several parts interesting. The part that I really found interesting was at the time, this was your disclaimer, which I absolutely love. Uh, I may, uh, am I allowed to, do I have your permission to plagiarize your disclaimer? <laughs> you and, go right ahead, dude. Um, I don't um, own words. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, so here's the disclaimer, which I absolutely love. This forecast is real a person would still be an idiot to make decisions based solely on their interpretation of my interpretation of strange data patterns. Universe, forward, universe rewards thinking. Everyone should try, should try it for themselves at least once. Uh, now would be a good time. I absolutely love this <laughs> disclaimer. 
um, and I am planning on using it somewhere in the future. Um, let me go to page three. Uh, a couple of things I really liked on this report. It's kind of old. I don't feel, uh, 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 I wonder, are people, people that, that sign up for your service, do they get like the history of all of your reports for them to read? No, it's never worked out that way. Um, uh, I've done some bundles and so on, but no, it's not a subscription service. It's just a report service, especially now that we're getting into cryptos. People were making a lot of money on the forecast. And each, each time it must be understood that the data sets move continuously. So just because it was in uh, previous reports doesn't mean that a data set is not fading over time. So no, I've never done it as a subscription service. Okay, so people don't get so. Uh, is, is a person still able to buy this 2010 report for the for it's, 10 bucks? Yeah, as far or? as I know, there 100% of my history is still out there. If you go to the uh, Half Past Human Purchase Reports page, it is long. It goes and goes and goes and goes. I've never taken anything down. Uh, and the same thing is true of all the essays I've written. So there's a bunch of you know, thousands of that crap out there as well. Some of those essays were used to provide background information uh, on the forecast as they developed. I, I do have to say that I did enjoy reading this uh, this morning a lot. And I, I, I will say that I certainly got my $10 worth uh, that I used uh, back in 2010. Uh, but um, yeah, so there were a couple of interesting things here, right? So this report was published in May of 2010. And uh, here on the first page, uh, here's what it says. And, and over here, it looks like you used uh, brackets to show linguistic language. Instead of single quotes, correct. Right. And you use like, I, I don't even know what these things are called, like the wiggly parentheses. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The uh, curly brackets. Yeah. The curly brackets for uh, your additional explanation of the linguistics? Correct. Got it. Okay. So here's what it says. The emergence of the forecast, quote, oil volcano uh, language associated with, quote, nuclear explosions, which I had wrongly assumed uh, would be initiated by the Israeli mistake, in quotes, has significantly altered the linguistic landscape within model space. Now, the other thing I found interesting between this 2010 report and the current report is that they both, and I didn't even talk about this with you in, uh, in the last segment, is the, the color blue, because <laughs> this report talks about blue flu, and that report talks about something blue. You have like five different parts of it. Sure, sure. Report. And you have to understand that there's actually, um, uh, in Pluchek and other uh, psychologists' understanding of how people relate to uh, well, and even like in prisons today, we've discovered that particular colors have emotional responses in humans. They evoke emotional responses in humans. I've discovered in language that people will try and evoke colors in an effort to express those emotional, um, uh, a similar emotional state within themselves. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, do you have any information for us on what turned out to be the oil volcano. Now, now, the audience has to keep in mind that that report took place after the, um, the Deepwater Horizon incident uh, by BP in the Gulf. That report was written after that. So the oil volcano has actually already, had actually already had happened. So it's possible you're picking up that language after the fact. Um, 
And uh, did anything ever happen with the Israeli mistake? Okay, the Israeli mistake morphed over time. Okay, that set was, I, I don't know it at the time I pulled down a set, I have no way of being able to predict even to this day, how long that language is going to be active, whether it's a flare up of language or whether it's going to be active month after month after month after month. There's no way initially for me be, to be able to predict. And so I can't tell ahead of time if a particular set is going to have a termination date, so to speak, a pull by date. All right. Sometimes these sets morph, as in the Israeli mistake, it went from a single instance of mistake to mistakes and went on and on and on and on about a spreading of a, uh, a generalized degradation of the Israeli position as mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake kept happening. And so it was not, it ended up not being a single instance of a mistake. The oil volcano language, uh, the oil volcano stayed the same, but the um, uh, language that built it up underneath it over those next few months went to the uh, shale and oil glut that occurred. And so it morphed from what I thought was an oil volcano in terms of an actual physical thing like we had in the Gulf to being a financial volcano as oil basically kept spewing out everywhere and it crushed the price. So from the time this report was written in 2010, I, I believe it was the next two reports, the language morphed over time then. And then we get the, uh, uh, it was in 2011 that we got this big, input of the shale and all of the other language showing up about the oil markets and the oil markets themselves uh, behave differently from that point on. So it turned out to be prescient relative to that. Right. So I'm actually curious uh, because I also just realized that uh, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, but I don't remember what the date on that was. Do you remember? 3, 3 that was, 11, 11. That was 2011. Yeah. Okay. So that took place after this report, but uh but the oil blow up in the Gulf uh, took place before this report. Sure. Now, also the Fukushima thing uh, was characterized uh, ahead of this ahead of it, uh, its appearance. Uh, I mischaracterized it, or I accurately characterized it, depending on your viewpoint, as a global coastal event. Okay. I shouldn't have used the term event. I had a number of different words. I, I could have chosen phenomena. And so Fukushima was uh, within the set that was termed the global coastal event, and it actually manifested and it has affected all of our coast. It has totally uh, put all this radiation into, into the Pacific, et cetera, and we're all living with the radiation is issues. So it was global. It met the coastal conditions and so on. It was associated with an earthquake. There was all of this damage. And so it met all of the linguistic criteria. But my interpretation was such that I was misdirecting without knowing it. I was thinking it would be a big earthquake that would affect the coast because there was the earthquake in the set and there was stuff about power plants, but the power plants seemed secondary relative to my understanding of what I was looking at at that time. Okay. So, so it actually did manifest again, not as tightly as say the, the uh, Banda Achi earthquake was forecast and the language in that, because in that forecast, I said a nation would be knocked back to a previous age and the 300,000 people would die and that the seas would be polluted by this, and that it was an uh, ocean-based uh, electric storm. That was the only language I had um, uh, formatted at that time that, uh, that uh, showed up. And so it was you know, an underseas earthquake that caused a tsunami, and the resulting language was accurate. The um, 
causal language was not. So I've got to be really careful about picking causes for events that I see in the data sets, because usually I'm wrong. Well, there, there was there were lots of other things. Like I, I found like huge differences because again, the reports were eight years apart that I've read in the last 24 hours. And um, as you can see in this current example uh, and throughout this report, you are very, very specific about dates, like almost with certainty. As you can see in the screenshot, November 8th is mentioned. Um, and then it says, according to the, and then um, like four day tipping points, uh, being very, very specific on a lot of the dates. And I felt like even just in this uh, screenshot, uh, you can see how July 11th is specifically mentioned. And throughout this entire report, um, the dates are very, very specific. And I'll point out a couple of those as well. And I found it interesting that earlier in our interview, you say that you don't trust date level granularity. So Any, anymore, anymore. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So, so this, uh, so this is why this 2010 report reads completely different than the current report because the granularity in this report is off the charts. Right. Okay. So, you have to understand that the internet in is not a mature thing. Right. When I first started getting involved in this work. Uh, most of the language on the internet was long-term because in the 90s, in the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, uh, we were dumping vast quantities of digitized old records on the, on the internet. That was just a major thing that was going on. All kinds of people that used to store stuff on paper were scanning it and putting it online. And so lots of long-term language showed up. Lots of very precise date language showed up. Um, and that has changed over time as, as the internet has matured. And the internet is now much more of a, an immediate um, uh, of the moment kind of thing being dominated by immediacy language as opposed to longer term language. We still get these tranches though. So as a new country comes on to the internet, if they've got a big historical basis and they do a big digitizing process. So when Indonesia, for instance, started digitizing records and putting them online in some mass amount in 2008, it altered the flow of the immediacy language versus the long-term language for a period of a number of months. And I was able to determine what was going on by finding out who was doing what kind of digitizing uh, processes. These are less frequent now, the internet is larger, the whole thing is a lot more um, vague, so to speak, in terms of the uh, nature of language, because slang in and of itself has a duration of, uh, of emotion that it's trying to convey, but, and it's also relatively short term in terms of its um, uh, existence as, a, as language, but it's also very imprecise about things like time. So some languages, some uh, uh, languages like Italian as a result of being derived from Latin is, is very clued into time. There's lots of discussions about time and the and future is a, a very precise. Other languages are very vague about time, like Arabic. And so getting a lot of stuff from Arabic is, uh, you know, it tends to flatten out the, the number of instances across your scattergraph of very specific language. So language itself has changed. 
Right. And um, yeah, as I, as I scroll through this report, which was uh, almost the same as I claimed as the other one. So I, I'm wondering if all of your reports are approximately 35 pages. That doesn't really matter. So don't answer that. Um, so over here, you talk about a very critical 12 days of the Obama administration in August of 2010, uh, leading to something significant on August 13. So I actually, like earlier today, I started Googling some of this stuff uh, to look at some of these specific dates, uh, the November 8th date that you specifically talked about actually turned out to be that weird, maybe, uh, uh, what do you, uh, that, uh, uh, what do you call it, that incident in LA where it was a missile, it wasn't a missile, it was an airplane, it wasn't an airplane. Uh, so I right. thought that was kind of interesting. Of course, the, <clears throat> the BP incident uh, took place back in April and your report was coming off the 2010 flash crash, which took place about two weeks uh, before you published the report. And that entire report to me read like some of the biggest gloom and doom I've ever read. It talked about uh, the elimination of the dollar in a couple of years, talked about sure. paper trading going away, talked about nuclear events, talked about uh, like literally like the end of the world leading into 2012. Right. And we've got a lot of long, longer term. And so timing aside, uh, it was pretty accurate. <laughs> right. <laughs> really? we've, had we've, we've had nuclear events. We've had Fukushima. We're also getting away from the dollar in a serious way. It's just taking a, quite a bit of time to actually accomplish all of these things. And, and so in that sense, uh, the accuracy, and I don't know, I mean, uh, the missile thing aside, the accuracy on a per date level uh, has decreased because the number of, of instances of pure dates that are showing up has decreased over time. And as I say, language changes over time. I didn't know I was getting into a situation of chasing a moving target that would morph as I was going along. So I wasn't necessarily sure if I was looking for a fish or a bird or, or a mammal at any given time, but I knew it would be moving basically that way. <laughs> Yeah, but this literally looked like a report that you need to immediately go and build a bunker. Talks about right. massive food well, hey, shortages. That's, and that's reflecting of the language that was coming out of the data sets and the mindset that was coming out uh, in a larger sense uh, that has significantly changed uh, with the recovery from Mount Gox. Somewhere after the 2013 crash of Mount, Mount Gox, let's say maybe it was um, three months, four months, five months, somewhere around in there, it was, it was possible to see that the language at an emotional uh, level was, was changing. Uh, initially, I put it down to a new generation coming in and getting much more involved in things. But now I think that if that were the case, that that new generation's emotional approach to things has started to percolate outward because it's an, become a generalized trend. Uh, it's, you know, it's like as though we were anticipating uh, at a national level a depression and we skirted it. We missed it. Right. We didn't have that depression, but it took us a few years for all of us to get out of the depression mindset as we anticipated that depression coming in. And the language was quite clear about all of that. All right. Uh, two last topics on this report. Uh, did anything ever develop with the global pop island girl uh, linguistics? And I will read this for our readers. Uh, this uh, compliment is a, uh, quote, female personality, unquote, uh, that is 
indicated to come from the, quote, islands of Asia. This, quote, woman or women um, has a brief but planetary, in quotes, level of visibility, in quotes, after a unique demonstration, in quotes, of entirely human skill, quotes, and then it goes on a little bit more. Um, did, did, did you ever figure out what that led to? We had, okay, so I run things that are called reconciliation, where uh, on some specifics, I'll hunt them down in a deterministic factor, but basically I'll load all of the sets that uh, just the, the quoted material and have the uh, data scraping look for those instances to appear. In 2011, we had the emergence of this South Asian uh, women's collective that had gone on to do great things with uh, micro lending, okay? And so that met the linguistics uh, criteria there. We also had the emergence of a South Pacific uh, group of women that went on to influence um, uh, Hollywood and cause changes within our language relative to um, cultural appropriation. And so they had impacts there as well. And so those were likely, or, or those are my candidates at the moment. Gotcha. And on a final note, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this report so I can do a screen share uh, before I introduce it. Uh, now we'll skip this part, the deflation, the hyperinflation stuff. Here we go. Uh, this was the section I wanted to talk to you about. Let me uh, zoom this out a little bit, maybe 120. Um, will show the majority of this page. And here we go. Uh, did anything ever materialize from the space goat farts and the giant mutant uh, gas attacks from space? <laughs> yeah, actually, actually it has. And we've been um, uh, cursed with it uh, uh, one way or another. Space goat farts is the stuff that's really way out there, okay? It's all the woo-woo stuff. And uh, you have to understand that this is that the giant mutant space goats propel themselves from planet to planet by farting. <laughs> so that's that's where that's where we get the space goat farts. It's stuff that you know. But on the other hand, we've um, lost a significant portion of the atmosphere, and from um, uh, 2011 onward, we've taken uh, Kim Trailing to its uh, global presence. All right. Prior to 2011, we didn't have any of the chemtrailing in a large number of areas around the planet. It was basically a, a United States, Australia, and European phenomenon. And then, or prior to 2010, and then post 2011, uh, it's pretty much wherever you might want to go that there's a lot of human habitation. And so, yes, we do have the, the gas attacks that are going on. Now, coincidentally, we also had at that point We'll have to look it up into the dates, but there were three instances of um, gas attacks of people against other people. So the language showed up that way, right? Like the uh, claim of using uh, gas in um, for you know as an act of terrorism or or warfare. So uh, we've had those show up as well. But the the space goat farts um, are nastily uh, prescient, although usually they're about two years out. Tone, you're you're muted. Sorry, um, that's right. That 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 was it for me. I'm trying to check the rest of the report. I don't think I highlighted anything else. Um, yeah, no, that that's about it from the 2010 report. 
Um, so that's pretty much it. I, I guess I have um, one question. Are you planning to do an ICO? Uh, I was actually thinking about it in a weird kind of a way though, right? Uh, what I wanted to do was to get out of the business. I wanted to uh, see if we couldn't aggregate uh, a bunch of people to do a wiki style um, monitoring on the emotional reduction engine. And so instead of just having myself saying that this particular word is this emotional value, we might get thousands of people doing it. And so I wanted to have a group effort just so I don't have to do this stuff anymore. But I have no interest in particularly writing the code for yet another ERC-20. If I went, I'd go ERC-23 and that sort of thing. It's actually too much work <laughs> to, to do, do that. But I've, I've sketched out a way to convert all of my system into Python and then uh, let some people put an interface on it so you would be able to run your own linguistic analysis based on your parameters, whether you wanted to do it deterministically and see if people were talking about specific things or see what they were talking about ancillary. And so if you think about it in a particular way, it's valuable information, even for traders, because uh, you might go to a party and in a party, you might hear casually other people talking about certain uh, aspects of your particular business and make business decisions on the fact, just on the mere fact that people were talking about it, that there was a buzz in the air about a particular kind of a product and, or, or, you know, coin or whatever. Right. And so this would be that equivalent. You would know, you know, it could be gamed. It could be, you'd have to be careful. There's all kinds of caveats to it, but it does provide uh, meaningful, <laughs> meaningful information should you want to go that route. But I'm, I'm not particularly uh, motivated by all the work for doing an ICO. I've got to come up with something else to do, but I don't know what it's going to be. Gotcha. And also uh, something you said earlier in the interview that you knew about Bitcoin in 2009, uh, but in this May 2010 report, there isn't a single mention of cryptocurrencies. When did cryptocurrencies show up in your report? They, uh, they showed up in 2005 uh, in terms of a replacement for the dollar. And I started talking about the replacement for a dollar in 2005 as it, it talked about these new kinds of um, elements. And it was in some of those reports in 2005, 2006. Now in 2009, yeah, but, 10, I, but, but, but even back then, like as far back as those days, I remember reading about the, the Amero and how everything else is going to destroy the dollar, right? right? So that's not right. specific enough. But specifically, Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrencies, when did they first appear? Do you remember which report first talked about uh, it would them been, it would have been in, people to read? Okay, it would have been in, um, I would, okay, the first time I started uh, uh, really uh, mentioning it would have been in the end of 2011. Because I started uh, saying, okay, 2012, I, I did a, a podcast. At the end of the podcast, I was jumping up and down saying, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And then, you know, barely a year later, we had the Mt. Gox crash. And it's like, oh my God, you know. But I didn't see, uh, at that point, I knew Bitcoin was going to take a long time. Cryptocurrencies, though, the language for that has been so specific that it's really emerged in 2013 and 14. And that's when I started getting into... Uh, uh, more of the predictions around Bitcoin and a continual mention of it. Right. And just another question, like, uh, how did you watch the transition, right? Because um, obviously by me reading the 2010 report, it looks like the majority of your audience were people like gold bugs and preppers and more, uh, again, it's a little more gloom and doomish, uh, while your recent reports are really, really uh, not uh, gloom and doomish, but the opposite. It's they're very, very optimistic instead of pessimistic on the future of cryptocurrency. And how have you like, like for example, your customers, the people that buy those reports, 
uh, what do you know what percentage of your readers are into cryptocurrency uh, today? Probably a pretty big percentage, right? That's your uh, main user. A fairly, a fairly large percentage. I mean, I've started concentrating on it. And necessarily, when you concentrate on the cryptocurrencies, you bring in a much more optimistic attitude than when you concentrate on gold and silver. Okay. I mean, this is this is just going to be obvious. The people that are involved in cryptocurrencies are forward-looking. They're developing new things. There's all kinds of language about that. As the language around cryptocurrencies has become evolving, HODL, for instance, right? And the other, other new terms are only specifically defined within the cryptocurrency world. And so they're very easy to track. And it brings in, yet with it, more optimistic language. The people involved in it are themselves uh, sharing a more optimistic view of uh, the reality that's around us. It's much more in, um, uh, satisfying to do work in that realm than to try and do work in the realm of gold and silver. I can still pull out language on gold and silver. I could still focus on it. I could focus on politics, but those things inherently don't interest me and they're rather depressing. And especially with the, the manipulation and so on. The transition though was quite clear in the month before and then the two months following the Mt. Gox uh, debacle in 2013 because there, it revealed the, that, rush in, uh, that rush up in speculation that crashed with Mt. Gox revealed this core level of language and personalities and people that were in it for the long haul, regardless of the, uh, uh, again, just like it is now, they're in it for the long haul. They're not necessarily in there for the speculation value. Now, a lot of them have changed in the subsequent uh, five or six years as personalities and they're expressing different things because they've made a lot of money. And so they're again, yet more optimistic. And that has a tendency to, you know, um, snowball, to, to gain momentum on itself. And so I expect it to continue for a little while anyway, in terms of the uh, change in the language. But you need to understand, too, that we're talking about software and, and software involves code. It's at a level of adoption and the adoptive rate is increasing and the people that are coming in will be less dedicated, more driven by price and will go through these cycles again. And people will see the utility. Some people will come on in for the speculation. The speculation will crash. Those that see the utility will hang along. And that group just is more optimistic by nature. And hopefully it'll spread out, you know, uh, and actually start changing some of the social order. Uh, like the Anarchapoco conference is a, um, is a direct uh, metric, all ver although very short you know, three or four years in history, its growth rate has been really staggering as a prescient indicator for, for interest in that sector, which includes cryptocurrencies as a tool for uh, global social anarchism, then under those circumstances, uh, we can suggest or we can predict that the language is going to get more optimistic and that we're going to grow in this particular way that was characterized as sci-fi world in that particular uh, report, uh, which I think was December of 2016. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that um, a large uh, portion of the people attending in Arcapulco are already purchasing your reports. And uh, you can definitely, uh, uh, they, uh, that group, I've been to those conferences many times. Um, I have a feeling they would be very interested. But um, on this note, uh, I am going to have to uh, end it here. Uh, so Cliff, any final thoughts and let the people know how to get in touch with you. 
<laughs> well, I don't want them to get in touch with me. <laughs> I've got stuff I got to do. I'm still, I'm still moving. Uh, but no, <laughs> good luck on your day. And you know, you have fun. I got to get to <laughs> out to doing some work. Gotcha. So you heard it there again, something else I need to take from Cliff. Um, I have enough people get in contact with me as well. Uh, but you can uh, find Cliff's work on halfpasthuman.com. You can also check him out on uh, Twitter. All of the links uh, are in the description of this video. And Cliff, thank you so much for your time. And um, hopefully we can do this again one day. And uh, to everyone watching, uh, thank you once again for coming on my channel. Uh, this is Tone Vase uh, for the conclusion of this episode of On the Record with Cliff High. Thank you. Thank you much. Bye.